Church of Ephesus, one of the great churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's our study today on Life 66. This is Pastor Greg. I'm glad you've come to join us today. Last time we were together, we talked about Revelation chapter 1 and getting started in this amazing book, the one book in the Bible that says that you will be blessed if you read it. And it talks about what has happened already, some things in, in history, what is happening now, the, the throne room of God, which we're going to see in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and then from chapter, or excuse me, chap, yeah, chapter 4 and chapter 5, then from chapter 6 on, what is to come, even in our future. Uh, but in, in this podcast and in the next few, we'll be looking at the seven churches of the Revelation, powerful passages, powerful um, rebuke to the church, powerful correction to the church, but above all, powerful love for the church. We can never forget that, that when God corrects us, he's correcting us out of love, not out of anger, that he wants to see us be all that he created us to be. And we start that today in the first of the seven churches. Now, as we get into this, we have to realize that Jesus is the head of the church, the body of Christ, and he's speaking in a most candid way here. He rebukes, he encourages, he challenges the church from the very first century even to the present. And there are seven churches listed here. Um, and it's interesting why these churches, why these seven? Uh, really only one, the church of Ephesus, has any uh, New Testament writing directed to it by the Apostle Paul. Uh, a couple of the others are mentioned, uh, Laodicea being one of them. Um, but the rest are, are, are obscure and, and not really known very well. So why were these chosen? Well, first, before we get into that, let me show you four levels of, in, of interpretation of these seven letters to the seven churches. These seven letters, by the way, communication from Jesus Christ to John to the churches. But there's four levels of interpretation. First, there's the local level. These are actual churches with real needs, real people, real locations uh, at the time that they existed. So they're real, real local level. Number two is an admonitory uh, level inter of interpretation, that in each of them, it's mentioned uh, the churches, that there's a plural. And so as these seven letters are going out to each of the individual churches, it's clear that all of the churches were supposed to read all seven and then apply what God was saying to themselves. And so there's this admonitory to the larger body of Christ uh, beyond the local congregation. A uh, third level is homiletic, and, and that is that it says that he that has an ear, let him hear, that he's speaking to the individual. He's speaking to people in those churches, that as these letters were read, people were convicted and people were challenged to go deeper and, and get closer to their Lord. And then number four, there's the prophetic, that this is not a very um, agreed upon uh, particular piece that I'm going to give you in number four. Uh, so whenever, whenever there's an opinion, I always want to make sure that I say it's an opinion. So this is not something you can find uh, you know, strictly in scripture. But one of the reasons why I think that these seven churches were listed here is that if you have them in the order that they appear in Revelation 2 and 3... They actually lay out the entire history of the church from the book of Acts to the tribulation. Now, again, it's not agreed upon by every scholar or by every Bible student, but I think it's a fascinating thing to, to, to look at, that if you look at the church of Ephesus, 
uh, you can track that it had neglected priorities from the apostolic age to about 100 AD. In Smyrna, there was this uh, satanic opposition, which we can trace to uh, 100 to 313 AD, this age of persecution. Next was the Church of Pergamos, uh, a time of religious compromise um, when the church became more uh, tied to the governments of the day from 313 to 590 AD. And then Thyatira, uh, the age of immoral practices, this age of uh, the, um, the, the papacy and the control of a, of a um, religious, religious government. That's from 590 through the tribulation. Uh, Church in Sardis, the spiritual apathy, a time around the Reformation from 1517 also to the tribulation. Then Philadelphia, a uh, powerful word to this church, but lost opportunities, possibly the missionary church from 1730 to the present. And then Laodicea, finally a time of material prosperity, but a wandering uh, um, allegiance from maybe 1900 to the tribulation. So notice those last four churches, they kind of stretch from earlier beginning points, but all of them to the time of Jesus Christ's return. Um, Each of these have really unique pieces about them, but they have a lot in common as well. Uh, To each, there's an address, and the names tie with the character of the letter. For instance, today we're going to talk about Ephesus, and that word Ephesus is a endearing love, a maiden of choice. That's an intimate, almost romantic type word. Uh, And this whole letter is about you've lost your first love. So there's a tie-in of the address to the actual contents of the letter. Uh, To each, there's a specific description of Jesus that we already talked about in chapter one. So in each one, watch for the um, description of Jesus that ties into that first chapter. To each, uh, there is a praise except for two of them. There's no praise for Sardis, no praise for Laodicea. Also, to each, there's a rebuke except for two. There's no rebuke for the church in Smyrna and no rebuke for the church of Philadelphia. And to each is a closing statement. To him who has an ear, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To each, there's this challenge and a promise to the overcomer that if you'll overcome, if you'll press in, if you'll obey, if you'll hunger and thirst, that there's an awesome promise that is made to each person and church that will be the overcomer. Pay attention to the fact that the promise is outside the letter in the first three letters. The promise is inside the letter in the last four letters. That what does that mean? That, That the promise is yet to come for those first three while the promise of uh, that God is giving is actually in the midst, in, in the timeline of the churches uh, of the last four. So it's fa- fascinating to look at how God has tied this all together. So as we, as we read these seven letters, it's really a report card to us. It's not as if God is trying to criticize, but he's saying, listen, this is where you are. This is what you can correct. This is how you can overcome. So let me, let me read to you this letter of the, to the Ephesians in chapter 2 of Revelation from 1 to verse 8. It reads this way, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, 
that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this argument, or I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's talk about this church first before we dive into the actual content of the letter to learn who these people were and what this church was like. This church was founded before the time of David, back in 1400 BC. And and the area where Ephesus is found in in modern-day Turkey, it was a metropolis of Asia, the center of trade and business, a major sea and naval, uh, seaport and naval base. Actually, this city was the capital of Asia Asia Minor and the largest city in the area, possibly a population of about 500,000, which was gigantic for the time. Uh, That number is estimated because there is, uh, now you can go visit the ruins of the city of Ephesus, and there's a 25,000-seat amphitheater that's been uncovered, which would give rise to the the, uh, likely possibility of the size of that city. It was a trade city with a variety of cultural influences. Um, uh, It's been been found by scholars and by archaeologists, a tremendous library so a very learned city, a very curious city, a very uh, educated, uh, passionate for knowledge type city, but also a very pagan city with loads of idolatry and immorality dominating its religious and social life. Here was the temple of Artemis or Diana, the goddess of sexuality and fertility. You can read more about this and what happened there in Acts chapter 19 and 20. Uh, the temple um, of Diana was one of the ancient or is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, four times larger than the, path, than the Parthenon in Athens. And in that temple, it wasn't all worship of God. It was worship of idols. There was prostitution there, an asylum for criminals, etc. Paul actually spent three years in Ephesus teaching and training and raising up the church there. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 to 31, he warns the church leaders of false prophets and tells them to be careful of wolves in sheep's clothing and that they must keep their doctrine pure. The, the fascinating story in Acts chapter 20 of the seven sons of Sceva uh, happens there. Um, these false prophets that were trying to cast out demons in, in a name they knew nothing of. Tradition tells us that the Apostle John, who's actually writing this revelation after he um, uh, came off of the island of Patmos, actually died and was buried here. Also, tradition says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, was buried here as Jesus told John to keep her in his care. Uh, And so that's, uh, of course, tradition, uh, but an interesting side note. So let's look at this letter, Ephesus. The word means maiden of choice, darling. It's a term of endearment. It's a term that a a man would use for his lover, uh, that there's this love relationship between the church and Jesus Christ. And uh, that's why the theme of this whole letter is, what happened? Where'd you go? Where'd the love go? You've lost your first love. So let's, let's dig into this. 
verse two, or the first one is to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? Um, verse two, to the angel of the church, each church has an angel. And some want to say that these, these angels really mean the pastors, uh, but that's not what the word means in, in the language. It means messenger. Hebrews chapter one, verse 14 tells us that the angels were ministering spirits and that there are strongholds of angelic forces. Um, remember back in chapter one, we have this picture of the seven lampstands and the seven stars, and that the uh, stars are the angels of the churches. And so that is my particular view, because I think it agrees with scripture, uh, that the angel of the church is, uh, uh, each angel is one of those stars that was uh, indicated in chapter one. This means simply, remember that the lampstand and the stars are in Jesus's hands, that he's in control. He, there, there's no, there's no worry if we are the church. He has got us and he's never going to let us go. He walks in the midst of the churches. He's the center of the church. We, when we gather together, it's not about what we can get out of the church service. We gather as the church to worship the head of the church. Makes me wonder if we've been properly praising God or if we've been looking at the church as a, as a commodity like Costco, where we go and get what we want and leave. And that's not the function of the church, is to come and to worship the Most High God. In verses 2 and 3, that there, there are these words of, of uh, encouragement, that Jesus is conscious of what the church is all about. He says, I know your deeds, I know your works. And, so, and some of these are great things, as you, you, you cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tried and you've tested false prophets and you've not allowed them to have voice that you've persevered during hard times, you've endured hardships. In that hardship, you've not grown weary. And, uh, and last one is they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which God also hates. That Nicol- word Nicolaitan, it, it, it's a compound word, and it means control of the people. That there was this false doctrine of the separation of clergy and laity, and that the clergy became dominant over the people and began to control them. And you can see in uh, some of today's religious traditions where you have just people who have uh, extreme power over the masses of people. That was not Jesus's plan for the church. He gave us his plan in John chapter 13, that the leaders of the church were not to lord it over the church, but to serve the church and watch and wash feet. It's sad to think that a little bit later on, when we get into the church at Pergamum, we find that this um, this toleration, or rather the 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 beginning of this Nicolaitan idea, has risen to prominence, and now it's a doctrine in the Church of Pergamum that this laity clergy separation has really taken life and has has gripped the church, which is, which is certainly a horrible and a sad thing. But he's encouraging them. You work tirelessly. It's commendable. You, you endured patiently. Remember in Acts chapter 19, when riots broke out in the city and, and it was a, just a, a horrible scene, the church endured that. And for all their efforts, they remained faithful to his name. Uh, they had discernment, chapters two and th- or verse two and three say that they did not bear those that were evil and that they were able to test false teachers and test false prophets and then uh, do away with them. And that's powerful, and it's necessary for the church in all ages to be able to test what is true and what is right. 
Well, the Ephesians did not allow false prophets and false apostles. But there was some criticism in chapter in verse 4. It says, but I do have a rebuke for you. For all of your good things, you have a problem. And that problem is you've lost your first love. You didn't lose it. You left your first love. You're, I'm your maiden of choice. They've been so busy doing the king's business that they have little time for the king. He desires us, God does. He wants our love response. He wants to be near us. He calls us his bride for a reason. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it talks about God's love for us. There's 20 mentions of love in that uh, six-chapter letter to the Ephesians. The fabulous portion in chapter 5, verse 22 to 23 of Ephesians talks about the the love between a husband and a wife being that um, model of Christ's love for the church. And in chapter 3 and 4, it talks about the fullness of his love for his body, the church. It says, you've lost your first love. That Greek word means it's, it's a love of rank. It's your best love. Not your first in the, in the place of this was your, you know, your puppy love, the very first one you had. No, this is your best, your prominent, your, your love above all other loves, ind- indicating uh, or rather paralleling the first command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. This is your best love, your first love. And God is saying to the church of Ephesus and to us today, where'd you go? You abandoned, you left your first love. In other words, you have other loves that are more important than me. You have other priorities that are more important than me. Kind of like Mary and Martha, that the church of Ephesus is like Martha, where she was busy, 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 while Mary was sitting with Jesus, loving him. And Jesus said, Martha, you're doing good things, but Mary chose what's better, a first love. And that is what I'm after. Similarly with David and Solomon, David uh, is spoken of everywhere with praise, but yet Solomon built all the beautiful glory. His temple and his wealth was renowned, but yet he's not spoken of with the glowing words that David has spoken of, even though David had lots of problems, lots of sin, he had a hunger for God's heart. Not a perfect man, but a man who put the love of God first. This is where we need to be today. Work is not, work is done, uh, or, or rather if we do the work without love, we're just, we're just spinning our wheels. But when we work out of love, then God can come alongside that and he can receive glory and he can receive joy in what we do. This is love for him. Everything flows out of that love. Why do you do what you do? Whether at work, at school, at home, in the church, anything you do, is it based in because you love God? That's what he's after. That God in everything I want to glorify you. In every word, in every deed, I want to love you. Well, in verse 5 and 6, and six, he has an exhortation to the church, saying, listen, you guys have fallen. You've lost your first love. But let's get it back again. Can you remember where you once were? Do you remember when you had that first love? Remember when, when I was the most important thing in your life, when you loved to pray and you loved to worship and you loved to read the word. Remember that church of Ephesus? Why don't you come back? 
So there's two words that I want us to remember today. When we, if we want to return to our first love, the two words are this, remember and repent. Remember where you were. Remember when it was so close. Remember when you were hungry for him and realize that you've maybe fallen away. And then repent. Don't delay. Turn around. Go the other direction. Go back there. Go back to where you first were. You can. Doesn't matter if you've fallen. Doesn't matter if you've sinned. It doesn't matter if you've struggled. He's he's there with open arms saying, come on back. Come on home. Will you return to him today? Will you return to your first love? Verse 7 says, to him who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, if you lost your first love, who has a, he who has an ear, let him hear. Come on home. Come on home again. Hear what he says. I want you back. And you're welcome to come back. And to him who overcomes, to him who does come back and restore that first love, that he says that he will give him the right to eat from the tree of the the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life. There's two trees, the tree of life and the cross. And if we'll go through the cross, we can have the tree of life. You know, there's two gardens going on here too. The tree of life was planted in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden so that they would not in their sin eat of the tree of life and live forever in sin. But there's another garden called Gethsemane where Jesus wept great drops of blood so that his will could be turned to the Father's and then he would then go and die on that cross so that we could have life. To him who overcomes, he'll allow him to eat from the tree of life. You can have life today, the life, the abundant life that Jesus will fill you with and have an absolute certainty that someday you will have life eternally. To him who overcomes, to him who returns to his first love. I hope today you'll return to your first love. Rather than just having honoring lips, but a heart that's distant. Mark 7, 6 to 7, Jesus said, The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I hope and pray today that your heart will return to your first love. And that you'll be an overcomer. And that then you can fellowship with him, your maiden of choice, or rather, we are his maiden of choice with the bridegroom for all of eternity. Return to your first love today, church. Remember and repent. Let's return to our first love. Next time, we'll be looking at the church of Smyrna and then on with the rest of the churches. God bless you. You are loved. It's Pastor Greg signing out. Remember to live by God's Life 66 every day. God bless. Bye-bye.